Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. We are back this week, and what are we talking about, Ian? Uh, we're going to try to avoid Mitch Marner if we can. Uh, we're going to <laughs> avoid Mitch Marner. As as two people from the Toronto area, I feel like we talk about the Leafs enough on this podcast, and we try to make this an NHL podcast. So the goal today is to talk about training camp. There are a lot of RFAs that remain unsigned heading into training camp. Some star players, Patrick Lane, Braden Point, Miko Rantanen, uh, Matthew Kachuk, I mean, the list goes on. So I think the question that I have is how much does missing training camp actually matter? I know we've seen other sports like the NFL lean towards training camp in the preseason not mattering nearly as much as it did in years past. Uh, So I think we're going to dive into that. And then we will touch on some of the RFA contracts, a few defensemen signed. And oh yeah, that Mitch Marner guy, we will eventually have to touch on that. But we'll try to avoid it for as long as humanly possible, but it will come up uh, at some point. Yeah, and I think touching on the fact that training camp it began, let's say, last week, physicals Thursday and media day, which isn't really a training camp day. It's just you have to report and be there for it. I think the real stuff really started kind of Friday. Um, okay, so as someone who's worked with a team behind the scenes, I don't really know what goes into training camp. I don't know what those first couple of days in camp, other than just doing drills and warm-ups and you know, the players seeing each other for the first time. I don't really know what goes into the actual you know, team A, team B, see, see all these like training camp invites and it's players you've never heard of. What goes into the first, let's call it week of training camp? Well, I think what's important to point out is training camps changed a lot. So before in the seventies and eighties, training camp used to be to get guys into shape for the season, but now guys are skating throughout the summer. They're expected to be working out in the summer. So training camp from that perspective, you're expected to show up in shape. Right. I mean, if a guy's not in shape, how many times have we heard always oh, in the best shape of his life? Like, I'm so sick and tired of hearing that. So the first week now has become day one is kind of physicals and media day. So tidbits, it's a lot of fun. They make you do a bunch of activities. I know Colorado was trying to get Nazem Kadri to say uh, something or do something. I can't remember. Oh, I think it was they put like a cast on their arm and they had to try and do something with a straight arm. Um, but then for bigger market teams like Montreal, Chicago, the Leafs, um, it's a lot more of Sportsnet's there, TSN's there, NBC's there, or MSG, whatever the big market TV people are there. They're there, they're conducting interviews, they're doing features, kind of setting up their content for the season. So that's media day. That's when, you know when someone scores and their name pops up on the Jumbotron? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So all of that nonsense is filmed on media day. Um, it feels like a frosh week kind of vibe. You know, it is a frosh. It yeah. Media day is frosh week. I just feel like anything like the first week of like, guess what? The hockey isn't really the most important thing. We get that you've been away for a few months. Let's kind of, it's like orientation in a weird way. So then (laughs) I'm going to get to that. So then like the that's kind of that once that's done there's probably a team dinner but then the next day that's when you start to have your coaches meeting your coaches presentation the gm speaks the agm speaks 
Like this person speaks, that person's it's it's insane. Sometimes the president speaks, sometimes the owner speaks, depending on how involved they like to be. Like I can pretty much guarantee you Eugene Melnick spoke at Ottawa Senators training camp. Um so it's it's kind of that's how it gets going, but the coach's presentation um is sort of this is the system we want to play. These are where we hit last year, but it's obviously a new season. So you're driving home a bunch of cliches. You're talking about how you want to play. Um, if the GM made any big acquisitions or anything like that, they'll talk about that, talk about the changes, the different expectations. Um, and that's kind of where everything is laid out on the line. And from that meeting forward, you're held accountable to that standard, or you should be. Um, so that's kind of what that is. You don't really start systems work until the second week of training camp. So the first week is like you have a bunch of invites, like you said, and you're doing scrimmages and just drills. And there's three different skates, so nobody's really doing anything. And the people who look into the first week of training camp just like just chill. Just it's chill. funny because I know I, I don't know who it was, but I remember something came across my timeline about someone in the Philadelphia organization was upset that Travis Konechny wasn't there and made a very, uh, I guess it was almost like the subtweet version of, uh, of of an answer in an interview. He didn't disclose a name, but he said, "Oh well, you know, everyone's here in training camp, you know, working to to get the team better, and and the, the, some people aren't here." It feels like this weird kind of throwing shade at a player for taking advantage of the only leverage that they actually have as an RFA. So, I don't know. The power dynamics are weird in hockey. Yeah, I would say the first week of training camp is... It depends. Um, if you're expected to perform and stuff like that, um, then you need it. Um, but the meetings and... Like, the system does not change that much unless you have a new coaching staff. So, I would say Florida's training camp... Very important this year. They have Joel Quenville. Like, that's a new coach. There's a whole new staff there. There's a bunch of new players. Um, so that's going to be more important. I'm thinking of, important. like, an NFL team with a new offensive coordinator. You know, the quarterback's got to be there because you're working on this yeah. new system, new playbook. The NHL isn't quite as sophisticated from a, you know, there are a hundred different plays we're going to run. But if we're overhauling the system, you want the players there to know positioning and get the kinks worked out in August and September, or I guess not August, sorry, in September so, and early October, as opposed to the first month of the season. Then again, what we don't talk about is that in the first month of the season, there are more goals than in other months because systems are a bit all over the place in the first couple of weeks. Well, yeah, you teach a system the third week of September. So they'll start teaching systems this week. Um, and, or like really batting it down on it because the preseason games start. But realistically, like you got a bunch of new players in. Maybe you're introducing some tweaks to the system. It's pretty loosey-goosey the first 10 games of the season. Um, very rarely do you see a team that's defensively tight unless it's Minnesota. Yeah, you'll um, see those like 7-5 games. You'll see a lot of them, especially if you're a Leafs fan listening to this or any team with a high-power offense. They'll look like they're completely unstoppable in the first couple weeks of the season, and then teams will actually start playing defense because the systems will tighten up. Right, and any team that has a new coach that potentially has a new power play, so the Leafs, um, Florida, it's very important to have at least the players that are involved with that special team, whether it's the penalty kill or the power play, there because... You look at it last year, and I'll just say three sentences and we'll be done with this, but William Nylander looked like he had a bad season last season by his production, but not necessarily by his 
his metrics. But the first because, month and a half were still pretty objectively bad. Yes. Um, and that's because he missed training camp. So let's say, for example, Miko Rantanen misses Colorado training camp. If Mitch Marner would have missed Toronto training camp, both of those guys play a ton on the power play. Same with Braden Point. So How about that Patrick Lane guy who the power play. play revolves around in Winnipeg? Yeah, really. And he's in Switzerland, so he's not even close to Winnipeg. If they're not there, by the time they show up, they're screwed because, yes, they're smart and they can adjust, but the adjustment period when everyone else is already on board and clicking, there's an adjustment period for them to get to you as well. So it's But isn't that kind of screwing power your power play, play units that are changing in their approach? Because I feel like in Winnipeg, the coaching staff remains pretty much the same. That top unit's going to stay pretty much the same. Yeah, I don't but, think you're going to change any of the, the players on there. So does okay, but think Lonnie about missing this. it have anything to do with how well that power play is going to perform if he signs on the first day of the season? I do, because look at how and the best example because it's recent is Nylander he did not perform very well when he came back and a lot of it and like we would ask NHL players hey like if you miss camp is it a big deal and to a man every single one of them said yes because the biggest thing with NHL training camp because hockey is such a bounce sport so randomized is your timing right you have to be in the exact place at the exact right time or it could go really sideways really quickly. And the number one thing that players use training camp for is timing. That's what that's what it's there for. You're learning systems and you're getting familiar, but you're getting your timing right with your new teammates, with your old teammates, because you haven't played all summer, right? So that's can I, can where I provide it's provide a counter-argument? Yes. Uh, P.K. Subban missed the first six games of the regular season in 2012-2013, and then he came back and won the Norris. Okay, that's also P.K. Subban. Okay, and, but that's my point, is that for some players, the timing isn't a huge deal. If you're talented and you're a good player, you can get used to hockey pretty fast, I think. But if you're holding out for three months, that's you're behind you, a ball. Should we use the word holding out if, you don't, if you're not under contract? Okay, if you are not with your team for three months, like, look at players coming back from injury. When you have someone coming back from a massive injury, let's say they get injured in November, they come back in March. They're not the I same feel, player. Well, I feel like that's a bit different, though, because physically they're not the same. Whereas if you're just negotiating a contract, physically nothing's deteriorated with you. You just haven't been with your team. Okay, but you're still not working on the timing with the players that you're going to be playing with. And that's why a lot of players, when they get traded, have a little bit of a rough start is because they do have that trouble adjusting to the different timings because every NHL player plays a little bit differently. That's why when there's inherent chemistry, you don't want to break that up. And training Remember camp they tried Phil Kessel with Crosby. They were like, this is not working. They yeah. tried him with Malkin. It worked pretty well. But then they put him on that third line with Haglin and was it Benino, I want to say? Or? Uh, Yeah, the HPK line. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden it, it clicked. And it took about a month or so for them to find that line. But once they found it, they stuck with it. Exactly. So that's like a lot of the things because timing is so important in hockey and building chemistry is when you kind of start behind the eight ball. Think about it. We talked about five minutes ago how things were loosey-goosey the first month of the season everyone's tightened up by the time November hits and if you're just getting into training camp you're like a month and a half behind you are not as tightened up as everyone who's been playing NHL games because 
say what you want about the AHL, say what you want about Europe, it is not the NHL. Like, if Puya Yarvi just got dunked into Edmonton in the middle of November, he would not be at the same speed. I don't know, KHL's the... Is he playing in the KHL right now, or is he? Uh, the Finnish League. Finnish League, okay. Finnish League isn't quite as competitive, but let's say a player's in the KHL. KHL's the second-best league in the world. Yeah, but it's we've still pretty come... loosey-goosey over there. I don't know, we've seen players come from the KHL and have success. I mean, you need to be, obviously, a, a phenomenal talent. But if you have the talent, I feel like the game speed is similar. But it's it's a totally different game. So then you have... I would agree that the level of game is is there, but you got to adjust to the differences in how the game's played because of its smaller eyes. So I guess your argument here is that when it comes to North American NHL quality of play, it takes at least a month, maybe a month and a half, and for some players two months, to fully get into tight NHL systems, tight NHL defense. Yes. And a month of that is preseason, a month of that is training camp, and then another month of that is October, where all team systems are kind of up in the air the first week or two, and they progressively get better, and then by November, you're finally locked in. Right, because that's why you see all those like 8-6 games, 7-6 games. It's nuts. You take the over, if you're betting, you take the over in every game in October, and just don't blink twice. And it's funny, because then you see, my favorite thing is a new goaltender on a new team adjusting to their style. It's very yeah. fascinating. I, I know this would be a better conversation to have with a former goalie, but if you're used to playing with a team where you were an aggressive goalie and they cleared the rebounds, and then all of a sudden you come to a team that isn't as good defensively, you have to adjust the way that you play in your net. And it's funny, this isn't just for forwards, this isn't just for defensemen. All players in a new situation, in a new system, whether you've been traded or if the coaching staff's different, you need to adapt. And I guess what your argument is, is that it takes time for that. So if yes. you miss the first month of training camp, it has nothing to do with the orientation and the stupid, you know, scrimmages here and there. It's more about just missing a month of competitive hockey. Exactly. That's going to impact your ability to just walk right in and be the same player people are used to you being. Like, I'm telling you right now, Zach Hyman and Travis Dermott will not have the seasons that everyone is likely expecting them to have. Like, everyone's expecting Travis Dermott to take this giant leap forward this year. I'm telling you, it's probably not going to happen because he, A, was out six months with an injury, so he physically hasn't been there. And B, he's going to miss all of training camp and all of October, likely. And same with Zach Hyman. These players who miss time at the beginning of the season due to injury everyone underestimates the impact that that has and I'm not talking like four or five games I'm talking like double digit games that would be an you interesting study to look into you know what I mean players who are not there for let's call it the first month of the season whether and then we'll look we, you'd look at players whether it was due to injury whether it was due to contract negotiations and then just see how the first month or two played out because maybe months three four five were solid months because they finally adjusted and adapted. But the, I guess, the adjustment phase in that first month or so probably didn't go too well. Right, and you also have, like, for the first week, I know teams made a bunch of cuts yesterday. So Ottawa made cuts, I think Colorado made cuts, the Leafs made cuts. There's, like, 70 people in camp. Like, exactly what kind of work are you getting done? So really, once you hit the second week and there's maybe only... 45 guys in camp that's basically your nhl and your ahl clubs 
that's a little bit more competitive because you're likely playing the same system at both levels. So it becomes a little bit more, I would say, vital. Um, it really ramps up. Um, but then you get to preseason and you're still playing. Like, I think you would know better in basketball and football, but do those guys even play in the preseason? Like, does Tom Brady even play in the preseason? Most NFL stars don't. I mean, if you look at the Ezekiel Elliott situation, he literally held out. He has two more years on his contract, but he held out for an extension. And then he signed the day before the regular season, played the first game of the season, played pretty well. And, you know, all was forgiven on both sides. It was it got the situation sorted out, and he's playing. I don't understand why the NHL can't be closer to that. I know that what you're saying when it comes to the systems and under, but if if the systems haven't changed that drastically, if if the head coach remains constant, the system remains constant, and you're an extremely talented player who's going to be playing with similar line mates, let's say. So for in, in Toronto, if you're Mitch Marner, you're playing with Tavares again. Guess what? You you have chemistry there. If you're Patrick Laine, you're going to be on that top power play unit that hasn't changed. And let's be real, that's where Patrick Laine's true value comes from. At five on five, yeah, he's I not mean, very good. He's it, it, it's 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 an interesting discussion about Patrick Laine at five on five. But on the power play, he's one of the best weapons in the league. Oh, for sure. And. I don't think he has to change much about the way that he plays or the way that the power play plays. I feel like that's been ingrained the last two years. It's been more or less the same system. I don't understand why Patrick Lani signs on day one of the regular season. I don't think he's going to be any less effective than he would have been had he signed yesterday. Um. See, I think it goes back to the timing thing. You hear guys, even whether it's they're late for training camp or they come back from an injury, um, they get hurt and then they, they come back. It's all about getting that timing down. I think it's more important in hockey than it is in football or basketball just because of the way the game's played. It's naturally a more random sport. So your timing is one of those things that is going you to be, be really important. prepared for a weird bounce to come out in your feet. and You need to be in the exact right position for you to get that puck. Right. And and so I, I also think there's a lar- bigger risk of injury to football players. Like if Tom Brady goes out there, we all know how good Tom Brady is. If he goes out there in the preseason and blows his arm or gets smashed by some guy who's trying to make the practice roster, like the whole of New England is going to lose their mind, right? Whereas in hockey, we kind of have this, you got to get your timing down. And a lot of veterans, they want to play two or three preseason games. But there's no, like in my mind, and I don't know what you think about this, there's no reason that your stars or anything like that should be playing five, six preseason games. Like, it's not necessary. Who was the player who injured Clark MacArthur in uh, in training camp? Patrick Seeloff. Okay. Sorry, I was just thinking when you're talking about how there's zero risk for injury, I'm like, I don't know, man. What if you got this this guy who just comes at you? But that's your own teammate. Yeah. It's hockey. It's a physical sport. And coaches love players who, you know, mix things up and, and throw a, a heavy hit in preseason or in training camp. And that increases the risk to your best players. It's not it's a non zero chance you get hurt. I'm I'm just saying. Hockey, oh of course. there's dumb things in hockey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, yes. Uh, it's definitely a thing. But I all, thought it was okay. Ben Harper. I was trying to make a better joke, but I didn't realize Are we it was so off. In agreement that the preseason is not a very good indicator of the success of the 
your team for the upcoming season? Or how about a player? Because I know that in football we joke about, oh, Mr. August. You know, <laughs> in in baseball, Is there Mr. October. That joke. I don't watch football. Oh, okay, yeah, that can be a joke of someone who just dominates in preseason, but then you know when the regular season starts, he's 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 a backup. He's not a good player. In the NHL, I'm thinking of someone like remember when Ty Ratty was gonna be McDavid's winger that was gonna yes. score a bunch of goals, and it just didn't work out. And it's because in the preseason. No one's really trying. I mean, some players are. Some players aren't. You can kind of tell. The, the older veteran players are not going 100%. The players who are on the fringes of the roster are going 120%. Yeah, know? they're going full set. <laughs> so it's such an interesting like difference between the players who you can tell are fighting for jobs and the players who really aren't. I'm thinking from a Leafs perspective, I know this is getting a bit Leaf-heavy, but I watch them the closest. Casper uh, uh, Kapanen didn't look very fast the first month of preseason. Or, yeah, in, in preseason. In, in September, he did not look like himself. Andreas Janssen, the first two months of the season, was terrible. He was oh not my God, very yeah. good. But then, once they, they flipped the switch, I mean, Kapanen, once he started playing with Matthews, Janssen moved up the lineup a bit. I want to say it was mid to late November when he turned things around. From that point onwards, they were about 60-point players. You know what I mean? They, they played at an incredible pace, and they had career years. So even though they were bad in the preseason, they weren't playing very much, didn't really matter. So this is, I guess, another a case that doesn't really matter if you're in these games where you're not really trying. If you're a veteran and you're just coasting around, you're just there because you have to be, how much does that actually matter at the end of the day? Yeah, like I think I heard a coach... It- describe the effort level of his veterans one evening in the preseason as questionable at best. And to be fair, like, it's their first preseason game or second preseason game. The games don't mean anything in the grand scheme of things, which is my argument to nobody should be playing on a back-to-back because why on earth would you risk that injury? Um... And if they're not going full send, which means they're not going into the corners to get pucks and whatever, like, realistically, is that really going to matter in the grand scheme of things? They're still going to be your top six forwards or top two defensemen when October 8th or what or October 2nd hits. So if they're not going full send, but they're working on getting their timing um, in open ice and making the transition passes and things like that, I'm okay with that because it's all about timing for you. That's the word that you keep coming back to. I guess that's oh, the yes. major theme here. I think I honestly I think that's the only point in preseason. Like I think that's pretty much all it's there for, which for me, if a veteran's only needs two games to get his timing down, then you're only playing two games. What about quote unquote game shape? The idea that you need to be able in the third period to still have legs because in I think that's September this, it gets and maybe in early October, some players might not have that, and that's why you see a lot more odd man rushes and open space for, for certain offenses, because the guys aren't getting back. See, for me, timing and game shape are looped in together, because for me, being in game shape means your timing is, is also in game shape, so... I I think there's some merit to that because preseason games do not have the same intensity as regular season games in the same way that playoff games do not have the same intensity as regular season games. I think we can both agree that it's an uptick. There's an uptick, right? And I don't like I think that like less timing space, is part more of the game back checking, yeah. uh, I guess just you, more effort on a per shift basis. 
Well, and one of the things that's a key um, in preseason is where you could tell if they give a damn or not is how they track back. So if they're tracking back hard through the middle, that's game shape. But if they're kind of just taking their sweet time or they're skating, but they're not skating up through the middle, tracking back through the middle, that's not good. Right, well, Johnny Tryhard. Johnny Tryhard yeah, exactly. is trying to make the team on the third pairing. He is flying back. And oh then yeah. You look and you're like, who's that guy who's not very skating? It's like, oh, that's John Tavares. It's like, well. Oh, it's uh, Nathan McKinnon. Yeah, oh, it's Nathan McKinnon. I think he'll be fine come October. <laughs> or if I'm Edmonton, I'm telling Connor McDavid that he is not to go full speed on a rush because I mean he's got a habit of going full speed and getting hurt. It's only right? it's happened once. And no, it was twice. Twice, twice. I Manning. forgot about how his season ended. My mistake. Right. So now, and he's probably not going to be ready for the preseason, but I would tell him, like, listen, you're fast enough that in the preseason, just get used to going that speed and playing at that speed. But scoring a goal in the preseason because you need to walk around a guy is not really that important if it's going to risk this guy trying to make the team and injuring you while doing that. You know what I'm saying? Like, what if this guy's trying to blow him up? We talk about yeah. load management for games that don't matter and like, you know, second half of back-to-backs and whatnot. If I have a McDavid, why am I playing him a single game in the preseason? Well, he probably wants to play one or two, but I'm telling him you're maxed at two. Okay. Because I feel like it's a similar argument to taking games off in the regular season where if you look at a model like Dom Lucision's, by removing even your best player, all it drops your, your chances of winning are by about 5%. Because yeah, okay, but Edmonton needs him, sport. though, because of the trickle-down effect. Okay, but my point is that you don't need to win a single preseason game. I could go 0 for yes. 5 in the preseason and not give a damn. You're like, right. I just think he'd want to, like, your your veterans would want to be there to, to get into that game shape. And for McDavid, I think he'd probably be in that in probably one or two games. So if I'm the head coach, I go, you are not playing more than two games. And too bad. Okay, you know who is going to be playing more than two games? Charlie McAvoy. Uh, uh, not a bad transition. Hey. Decent? Okay. That is... How is it that Boston is like, player asks for this, and the Bruins go, you no. can have 50% <laughs> of that, and the player's like, okay. It's kind of like, like in what? Tampa, how like the player's like, hey, I'd like this. Tampa's like, you know what? We're going to give you 75% of that. And they say, thank you. I'll accept that. In Boston, yeah. it's like, hey, David Pasternak, we know you're worth $8 million, but how's 6.6 sound? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie McAvoy, you're probably worth $8 million on a long-term contract. Here's 4.9. Tori like, Krug, we're going to screw you over every year along the line. Okay, fine. We'll give you a couple years at $5.2 million. Sure. It's, sure it, oh, also, Patrice Bergeron. Yeah. Like, um, throughout oh the duration God. of that contract, throughout the duration of his contract, I think there's an argument to be made that he was, what, a top five player in the league? Top, maybe higher? Like, we talk, Dom talks about players outperforming their contracts. You could make the argument that Patrice Bergeron's value to his team, he has outperformed his contract every single year. Fun fact, Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner make more than Bergeron, Pasternak, and Marshank combined. So, Yeah, that doesn't make me upset at all. Yep, just throwing that out there. Just you know, These are facts. What do you think of the three? So the three defensemen signed, I think, yeah, Wierenski was first... 
Um, he signed fifteen million dollars over three years, but he has seven million in his last year, which has okay. To so can you give me the the AAV? Sorry, just because I had to do some quick math there. And I'm like, wait, is that five million per year? Or? Five million per year, but the breakdown is four million, four million, seven million. But that doesn't matter. It's AAV, right? Like, oh, um, but you're talking qualifying mm, offer. Ah. Yes. <laughs> so tell us why that matters for someone who's always looked at it just divided by three quickly and go, okay, AAV. That's all I care about. Why does the last year of salary matter? Because if anyone was paying attention to the Marner negotiations, there was this weird offer that Marner wanted where he had a crazy high number in year three. Why do players want the last year of their contract to be high? Okay, so there's actual salary and then there's cap hit. The teams care about, like, and the fans care about the cap hit because it's like, what goes against my cap and I don't give a crap about anything else. That's the way that the Leafs look at things, the way the Rangers look at things. You know, if you're a rich team, the real dollars don't really affect you in any way. Right. However... So let's take Wierenski, for example. He signed a three-year, $15 million contract, which is five five million dollars on the cap. That's all the fans care about. Remember when we talked about this market resetting, by the way? And uh, it it appears that only only Toronto players appear to be resetting the market, but okay. I didn't think the defensemen were going to reset the market. I think the forwards will, because Braden Point's still not in camp. Um, which I was wrong on. I he's going to he sign for sign. like four years, seven million. I don't think he will. <laughs> um, anyway, so what it means is your last year, if you're an RFA with arbitration rights, um, y- the team has to issue a qualifying offer of 105 or 110% of the last year of your contracts payment. So the base actual salary, dollars the actual base they salary. paid you. Yeah, so if they're paying Wierenski $7 million in his final year, I think the next year after that, he qualifies for UFA. I know that's the case with Marner. Well, he gets one um, more year. He gets he, he gets one more year of restricted free agency. So if he decides, let's say Wierenski, the negotiations aren't going well for an extension. He decides to accept his qualifying offer, which now Columbus has to make at $7.12 or whatever million dollars. He walks the next year. And we've seen this with players like Jacob Truba and Mark Stone, that if you take a qualifying offer in the last year before you hit unrestricted free agency, that gives you a lot of power. You can can force your team to trade you, or, well, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. You get to choose your own destiny. Right, and so very quickly on Mitch Marner, because you'll hit this on your podcast, but the reason they wanted like the $13 million (laughs) base salary in the last year was so that they could qualify him for... Obviously, like thirteen point three million dollars, and then you're an going into his UFA year after, and then what, like, you get 30, 32 teams to bid on you. You know, <laughs> I outright was writing an article that this was bad faith negotiation because I truly believed it was until they sat down and got this thing done because the qualifying offer has to be the base salary. And so naturally, you're going to want that to be as high as it can be. But if you're doing that just so that you can screw the team over in and it's higher four, than McDavid's, I mean, I'm Yeah, sorry. that's bad faith in my eyes. That's totally bad faith negotiation. So well, no, Lorenzo, you know what's really, like, giving in to bad faith is, is the bigger problem in my opinion. But, well, I'm going to talk about the Mitch Marner negotiation in full in my podcast. It's be like a full hour-long podcast where we break yeah, it down. Yeah, we're not so talking about it anymore. We don't I'm need to talk about it. it too much here, but... Basically, I think everyone knows that there was an overpay relative to the, the, the peers and his talent. I like Mitch Marner as a player, but he's not worth $11 million. He's just not. And we're also, heads up, going to talk about when eventually Rantanen and Point and all of the other high-profile RFA signed. We'll, we'll do a full podcast on 
if the market reset, what we think of all the contracts, I we'll do a full does, podcast on it. I does, but I doubt it will. I doubt okay, that Rantanen so gets now, north of 10. I doubt that Point gets north of 10. So Provorov, he's uh, six years at 6.75. So that's a longer contract. Provorov's a more interesting one, in my opinion, because... With Charlie McAvoy, I feel like we have a lot of evidence that he's the one driving his pairing, and he looks like a legitimate first-pairing defenseman. Charlie McAvoy, at the end of three years, let me tell you something, he is going to be very expensive for Boston. But I think they're going to live with it because these next three years, they're a bona fide contender, right? Oh my god, yeah. And in three years, they're not going to have... Um, I'm just looking at the who Krejci, they are not going to The Krejci not- deal is probably going to come off the books, right? Krejci comes off the books. Bergeron comes off the books. Um, well, Bergeron, Backus, they're going to they're re-up Bergeron probably. He'll still well, be, he he'll play into retire. his 40s knowing him. Um, <laughs> Bacchus will be off the books. Like, uh, we'll have more flexibility. Yeah, Tory Krug will be you know, off the you books. You know who's going to be on the books? John Moore. Four more years, baby. Oh, man, that was not a great contract. That was, that was the Jack Johnson contract, basically, and it didn't get enough uh, criticism at the time, in my opinion. Yeah, it was. I remember when he signed because he was with the Devils. Remember, right? And I remember when he signed. I was like, "Holy yikes!" Are you allowed to comment on this? Did he play for the Devils when you were there, or no? Yeah, he did. But then he left to go to Boston. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's so, not very good. He's a fast skater, but he makes bad decisions. So. Well, I just like listen. I'll keep my comments of what I think about John Moore under wraps, but I can tell you that uh, you should not be play- paying or dishing out that kind of term to that kind of. Defenseman. I think you and I are in agreement that unless they're a star player, unless you're a star player, you're not getting five years. Like, mm-mm. I don't know. The Detroit approach seems to have worked so well with Luke Glendening and Justin Abdelkader and Danny DeKaiser, Jonathan Erickson. Yes, it's going swimmingly. But back to the defenseman here. I find Provorov and Wierenski fascinating because I was just at the Rochester Analytics Conference this past weekend and... The, the nerds are nowhere near as high on these players as their reputation. And I think the problem with Provorov is that you look at his 5-on-5 five five numbers, his rookie season was promising, and, and you thought it would go well. He played a year with Goss to spare. They played excellent together in that, in that first year together. And then ever since that year, Provorov hasn't been the same player. And I think people assume he has been because, you know, good goal totals, good point totals. But overall, his impact on the game hasn't been nearly as good. And with Redsky... I think a lot of it is Seth Jones. I'm not saying that Wierenski is a bad player, but I think that most so, of the value from that top pairing comes from Seth Jones. And I would agree defensively. I think offensively, Wierenski is a dynamo, but defensively, ho oh, oh, he has some some serious development. And we do. don't talk about it, about like the amount of quality shots that the Blue Jackets give up when Wierenski's on the ice. It's, it's a lot. It reminds so, me kind of of Morgan Riley. You know what the best contract sign this entire week was? Josh Morrissey. That's an interesting one. I like Josh Morrissey. That is going to be a steal for Winnipeg. I like that they got term on him. Eight years at 6-2-5. Yeah. They have him basically for the rest of his productive career. And then after that, I'm not sure you're going to want him, but guess what? You get him for eight more years. I'm like, I'll be perfectly honest. He's probably the best defenseman that we've talked about on this podcast today. Like I would say better than Morensky for me. I'm he's higher on McAvoy personally, but I understand why you're high on on uh, Morrissey. Can I can I say something about the way he plays? 
I think he's a perfect example of the way that you need to use skating ability defensively in the modern NHL because Morrissey's yes. not a big guy. He's not a strong guy. Nope. And when you but look at him, you think, you think, oh, this is going to be like a power play specialist, quick little skater. Like, yeah, this is where the game's headed. No, he's effective defensively because of the way that he takes away space in the neutral zone and uses his stick to take away the puck and forces you to dump the puck in. And when he's on the ice, the other team doesn't have the puck very often because he's good at being aggressive and forcing them to give it up. I mean, in the offensive zone, little pinches here, little pinches there. Guess what? My team still has the puck. And... Every so often, he's going to miss one, and it's going to go the other way for like a three-on-two or a two-on-one, and people are going to say he's terrible defensively. But you look at his numbers throughout his career, the pros have always outweighed the cons when he's on the ice. He's a top-pairing level defenseman. This is the modern-day... You don't need to play, quote-unquote, defensive-defensive hockey in the defensive zone with big hits and you know physical play to be effective defensively. And I feel like Josh Morrissey is a perfect example of that. Yeah, I think... You're right with McAvoy. Like, he's he is also a star. I just like his um, upside. He's three years younger than Morrissey. I feel like in three years, he could be better than Morrissey, is what it comes down to. You know to what? Yeah, he is younger. I had forgotten that yeah. Morrissey was a little bit older. I think today, um, Morrissey might be the best. Def- I mean, Jared Spurgeon, if he counts, he's not an RFA. I think Jared Spurgeon's probably the best defense, but he's 29. And that's a separate conversation. Right. I think. That's a different, like we're talking contract wise. Josh Morrissey has the best contract because in three years, Charlie McAvoy is definitely going to be getting paid more than 6.25. All right, ready? I have a, I have an interesting question for you. Here we go. Yeah. Rank these contracts. Okay. Wierenski, Morrissey, Provorov, McAvoy. And then for fun, we're going to throw Jared Spurgeon in there, even though it's apples to oranges. Okay. Um, Morrissey won. I agree because eight years, six point two five million for a first pairing defenseman. In 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 four years, that's gonna look like a misprint, and he's still gonna be a similar. It's gonna player. look like Duncan Keith looked like three years ago. Yeah, it's I don't think like, he's, he's not as good. He's not as good as Duncan Keith, obviously. No, but what I'm saying is, is when that cap goes up because of the TV deal, provided that they decide not to have a lockout. Um, Remember when Ryan Ellis signed his four-year, two-point-five million-dollar contract? God, that was such a the joke. cap. Oh the cap God. went up, and you're like, "Wait, this doesn't make any sense." It reminds me of that. It reminds me of Nashville signs so, the, these defensemen to long-term deals. The cap goes up, the player remains just as good, and it's like, "Yeah, this is a fantastic contract." Uh, we're, Morrissey won. Are we talking about in terms of team-friendly or player-friendly? I think we're going team-friendly because Morrissey is not player-friendly, in my opinion. Right. Okay. So. Um, Morrissey, McAvoy, um, I'll say Provorov for length, Spurgeon, and then uh, Wierenski, then Spurgeon. Ready for a crazy hot take? Mm. I'd rather have Spurgeon for the next six years than Provorov or Wierenski. I know Wierenski signed a three-year deal, but you have to think that he's going to sign another big extension in three years. I know Spurgeon's going to get worse, but I think he's just night and day above better than those defensemen that even if he regresses and those defensemen progress a little bit I think Spurgeon's still gonna be the better player see, throughout I the don't think Spurgeon's country. the best defenseman in Minnesota oh see I do and this is oh I think Dumba's better whoa I thought you were gonna say Ryan Suter no I th- no, oh god no I think I think Spurgeon's better See, I think Dumba and Spurgeon are their best defensemen. I think you're attracted to uh, those those big goals from the point that, that Matt Dumba has, but if we're just looking at pure 5-on-5 five five impact, Spurgeon's always been the better player. I like Dumba's skating. I, I like his... I like how he disagreement on, on the staff and graph podcast. I love uh, it. Yes. I love um, it. I just think that that Spurgeon contract, for me, 
you know the McAvoy contract's going to be valuable. You know that Morrissey is going to outperform his contract at basically every single year. Uh, Wierenski probably just from an offensive perspective outperforms his. Jared Spurgeon, if it was a five-year contract, probably the best contract of, or the second best contract of the bunch. But year, year six and year seven, 35, a, 36, yeah, not might not be in the league anymore. But then again, I always joke that you can just LTIR someone if, if they end up you know, suffering a major injury. Yeah, and this is done. Minnesota, not New York or Chicago or Toronto. Also, uh, there's going to be a lockout. There are going to be multiple lockouts. I don't know. But if it, if it goes really, really sour, you're always going to have that uh, non-compliance buyout in the back of your pocket. I always throw that out there for deals that look terrible. I'm like, well, look, you're going to have a few get-out-of-jail-free cards here. You have LTIR. You have your non-compliance buyout. It's not like you're locked into these seven years 100%. There are ways out of it. Okay, so let's hit... If it turns sour. Let's hit two RFA forwards that sign. Uh, Kevin Fiala and Pavel Zaka. So we've hit the defense. Those are the two that everyone wants to talk about right now. Yeah, well, we're not talking about the other one because I'm so sick and tired of it. Um, but I actually had forgotten that Kevin Fiala was an RFA until I saw that he signed, and I was like, oh! I, had I forgot Pavel Zaka was in the league. <sighs> Is no that comment. too harsh? I... N- no comment. <laughs> <laughs> I per- I think I like Zaka a little bit more than some other people in the NHL. You probably like him a lot more than me, because I, I literally forgot that he was in the NHL. Uh... Well, here's the thing. I remember him when he was a top 10 pick. I liked the pick. I liked him. I thought he had great tools. I thought he was going to develop into that top six, you know, a poor man's Kopitar kind of thing, you know? Yeah, except the problem is is when they drafted him, he was a perimeter player, and he is still a perimeter player. Um, I like Pav, though. Like, I think he's been a little bit miscast, but now that there's Jack Hughes and Nico, I don't think he's going to have to provide that top six offense. I don't even think he needs to play center anymore. I like that you're on a first-name basis with all these guys. You know, Pav, Nico. Uh, Everyone calls him Nico? Well, I, I call him Nico Hishier. I call him by... You know, well, first of all, it, you but... pronounce his name incorrectly, so there's that. I say Hishier for what it's worth. It's Hishier. And then people have corrected me to Hishier, and I'm like, but he's from Switzerland. It's like Yeah, well, you know what? That's French how there. he says it, so we're going to go with that. Yeah, well, Brett Favre pronounces his name wrong, too. But, oh, like. my God. I don't care. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, Zaka threatened to go to the KHL, and I'm actually friends with one of his best friends because they played in Sarnia together. And he was saying, like, if that leaked, that means that they're really serious because he doesn't think that Zaka would have ever threatened um, if it wasn't something he was seriously considering because that's just not who Zaka is. So that was kind of interesting to me, and then so you he thought gets- that was different than the other, like the cliche threat to Switzerland or to the KHL. Like it's in the it's in the playbook, you know. Yeah, but then he it was like, nope, this is the team and these are the terms, and I was like, oh, oh my goodness, okay. Um, but then he's three years at two two five, which I like. That's pretty team friendly for New Jersey. Um, is it? Yes. Is Pavel Zaka any good at anything? If you move him to the wing in the top six, that guy puts up 25 goals. Oh, Because then he doesn't on this. have to this play is the, in the middle. This is the Connor Brown bet. I think he puts up at, at least 20 goals if you actually play him um, with someone who's... With a Taylor um, Hall, with a Jack Hughes, with a Nico Hichier. Um, Or even like... Nikita Wayne Gusev. Simmons. 
Nikita Gusev. Well, yeah. They have um, some star talent there now. I'm okay, well, let's not let's not cast Nikita Gusev as a star. He hasn't played a single NHL game. Oh, have you ever watched him in the KHL? He's Panarin. Basically. Yeah, and so was Vadim Shipachov. Yeah, I, just because he didn't play a game in the NHL doesn't mean that he wouldn't have been good. I mean, you see how good Dadanov has been for Florida? Yeah, but he's still not a star. Dadanov's a first-line winger. He's not a star. Well, if Gusev's a first-line winger, I, I'd I say I don't that's, think that's he's a first-line winger in New Jersey, for, for one. Because uh. he's not playing ahead of Taylor Hall. You don't need to be playing on the first line to provide first line value though that's correct but i think you need to maybe tone it back a little bit like do i think he's going to be productive absolutely is he probably going to put up 50 to 60 points yes but let's not cast him as a star already i do they have stars absolutely is jack hughes likely going to be a star yes if i were to bet on jack hughes or nikita gusev i would be betting on jack hughes I think I would too, and that's why you know Jack Hughes went first overall. But I, I just feel like when we're looking at these Russian superstars in the KHL, and I'm talking guys who are in the top five in the league in scoring. When they come over, they tend to do really well. I mean, you look at Alex I know. I just think it's a little too early. Like Panarin. people, the, the counter argument is Kovalchuk last year, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but the age thing there. But I don't think he was the same player his last couple years in the KHL. You know, but. Yeah, I just think, you know what, if Gusev comes over and he is a star, then I'm happy to say that he's a star. But until he has played an NHL season, I'm not calling him a star. Yeah, you know what's interesting is that two years ago, Gusev and Kovalchuk played on the same team, mm-hmm. and they had like identical points in, in identical games played, basically. So Yeah. Uh, what about Kevin Fiala? Kevin yeah. Fiala... I'm on uh, Kevin Fiala. I'm basically his agent at this point. I, I, I really like, still, like him. I haven't sold my Kevin Fiala stock yet. I know a lot of people have. Uh, I still think that there is a 60-point player somewhere in there. I agree. I don't know if we see it. He might be one of those what-ifs, you know, guys who just never put it together. But there's just so much raw talent there. You look at his ability to fly up the ice with the puck into the offensive zone, make a pass as he enters the offensive zone. You're thinking, oh my god, this is like a a Nikolai Ehlers, William Nylander type of talent. I think they were in the same draft, if I'm not mistaken. I believe they were. You are correct. And I've always been high in his talent, and he's never put it all together. I want to say his career high is... Did he hit 50 points once? Um... I believe. He hit 48. He hit 48 points in Nashville, 23 goals, 25 assists. I think there's a 30 30 player in there somewhere. I'm just not sure if we ever see it. I'm not sure if he's given the right opportunities in Minnesota. Yeah, 20 40. I just feel like he's a natural. What if Matt Boldy comes out of school next year at the end of this year and plays with Fiala? Like, I think that's an ideal player for Fiala to play with. Who would he need to play with for it to really. I mean, Eric Stahl is weirdly still a very good player yeah like i just think he needs an opportunity stop trying to cast him as a two-way forward oh like, he's never stop gonna be that. that he's never gonna it, it reminds me almost like phil kessel it's like look you need to accept that there are strengths and weaknesses here and i'd love for him to be a very strong defensive player but i just it's it's just not happening at this point i, I doubt it but there's a ridiculous amount of talent that you can use as you know the the, the player who gets you the entry on the power play the Mitch Marner, the Matt Barzell, the Johnny Gaudreau. I think he could be that for a power play. Agreed. Just get you 100%. into the zone. And yep. then if you don't want him to be your quote-unquote quarterback, that's fine, but he'll get you in the zone. 
And that has a lot of value at 5-on-5 and on the power play. And I feel like if someone can utilize that to its maximal potential, playing with someone who can really shoot the puck and put it in the back of the net, I feel like there's a lot of talent there. So, of course, I like the bet of him on a a two-year, $3 million deal. I would have preferred locking him up long-term because I'm just so high on his talent that I think he outperforms whatever his next long-term contract is. But it's yet to be seen, and I could be wrong. And I guess that's the risk there, is that you don't want to get yourself into a deal of a of a player where you bet on him improving, and he never really improved, you know? Exactly. I just, you know what? I don't think that $3 million over two years is a big uh, risk at all. But um, would you have gone long-term with him? Are you saying it's a bad contract because they should have locked him up long-term? That's kind of the argument I'm going for here. Is that I would have preferred him on a five or six year deal, in, oh. at like I don't know, you know, four million, five million, four million bucks over be- six years, and then he ends up with. I don't know what he can justify oh being worth. You know what I mean? Like I don't know how he has any, like, I, I guess this is a contract he probably wants. He wants to bet on himself. I'm sure Patrick Lane wants to bet on himself on a short term deal. Yeah, but you're not so. signing for one mil, uh, one year, six million dollars. Like that's not happening. No, no, no. But you could sign. What would a one-year deal look like for Kevin Fiala? It would be arbitration based on what he got in his last deal. Is he eligible for arbitration? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know if he was. I think he might have been. No, he's coming off of his ELC. Oh, then uh, he probably is. Um, he probably wasn't eligible. Here's one that I just randomly found out. I don't think Brock Besser is eligible for an an offer sheet. Yeah, there are some players who, like, aren't eligible for offer sheets and some who are what's the distinction there i don't Uh, understand i try so hard to understand the cba and then there are these little quirks that confuse me a bit so um if you come out of college it means you're probably coming out in um march or february kind of thing right kind of like quinn hughes this past year yes so this will likely impact quinn hughes kale mccarr all of your college players um, you have to have, in order to be offer sheet eligible and arbitration eligible, um, you have to have a certain number of games played. And no player, like at least coming off of an ELC, is going to be arbitration eligible because you need at least four years of, I guess, NHL time. Right. right. So it's all about service time. Um, but in order to be eligible for an offer sheet, I believe it is a certain number of games played. Um Oh, is this like when Johnny Gaudreau wasn't eligible for one because he'd only played two years in the NHL? Right, because he burned that year when he came out. Same with Kale McCarr. Uh, Who else came out of school last year? Um, Uh, Quinn Hughes, Kale McCarr are the two who are coming to mind. Right. Uh, So Hughes will not be eligible for an offer sheet either. Um, Because the difference is, so here's how it works. If that really helps them of, with their contract negotiation because they have no leverage. If if they come out of the NCAA, I'm not sure about Europe, but if they come out of the NCAA, the day they sign their deal, the first year's burned. But if they're from the CHL, then uh, you actually have to pass that ten game or the nine game threshold and play the ten game for that first year to be burned. You know Ready what I'm for saying? For a crazy argument, is it beneficial to just burn the first year of an entry level contract? I feel like there's an argument for it. Okay, but there's also an argument against it. You don't get it. You're a year older when you can hit free agency. Yep. And you don't have any rights in your first contract negotiation. Oh, no, I, I mean uh, on the team's behalf. <gasps> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm thinking as a team, if you have a star player in an ELC, well, there's no better market efficiency in, in hockey. You know, Connor McDavid making 
$900,000 is just stupid, you know? And even with the bonuses, it's about $3.4 million, I think. So that's right. such an inefficiency. But if you burn that first year of ELC, and now they only have two years of, of service time, and they're not eligible for an offer sheet, they have no leverage. So that really helps you in your next negotiation. But it's only some players. Because I know William Nylander was eligible for an offer sheet, even though he burned his first year of the ELC. So was it the games played? Was it the service time? How was it calculated? Uh, I think I think it comes down to service time. I think you have to play a certain amount of games in a season for it to be counted as an accrued season. Um, is it is it nine games? I don't know what the game number is. Okay, because but Makar you do have to play didn't play any regular time. season games. You know what I mean? Right, but so he still he burned count. it. Yeah. No, no, no. But it, it still got burned. Yes, because, because he came out of NCAA. Whereas in if it was CHL, I do not think it would have burned the year. And did the same thing happen? I know we were just talking about him with Charlie McAvoy. Or am I... Yes. Okay. Yes. I thought I remembered him coming out of college and playing with them in the playoffs. Otherwise, a team would have done well to offer sheet him for well over $4.9 million. Yeah. By the way, real quick, what was Zach Rowenski's last year? Before we get out of here... His last year, what what's the dollar number? Because I know we talked Seven about... Seven million. So, okay. So they both kind of planned it in a way that's going to help them out with their next... Uh, I don't even know what you call it. Their, their arbitration. They can just sign a, a qualifying offer for, what, $7.5 million? $7.2 million? 7 point something? Something like that, yeah. And then walk into unrestricted free agency the year afterwards. So that's their negotiation. That's how they are going to negotiate their next long-term contract. It really helps them from a leverage standpoint. Yes. And that's good because players never have leverage. So it's good for them to make a play at least three years from now. I'm going to have a ton of leverage. Whereas Kevin LeBanc, right. you know, I don't know when that guy's ever going to have leverage. I guess he's counting on the under-the-table deal, but I can tell you for a fact that, uh, you know, I don't think too many agents were happy about the Kevin LeBanc deal, whereas oh, they're much happier with the Mitch Marner deal. <laughs> I, you and I had a conversation about that deal. That's... The NHLPA loves that deal. Don't be surprised when Kevin LeBanc gets paid handsomely in January or February, whatever it is. He better, because otherwise uh, players and player agents are are not going to be happy. Yeah, but they're probably tap dancing around a merry-go-round right now with the Mitch Marner contract. So if I'm if I'm Miko Rantanen's agent, I'm I'm licking my lips, you know. <laughs> yeah, really, because now you can rock up there and be like, "Cool, nine and a half million dollars." No. See, honestly, I asked for the exact same contract. Mika Rantanen mm. scored, scored more points than Mitch Marner over the last two seasons. Yes, but... Mi- Boom. Mm, yeah, but Mitch Marner more minutes. with Tyler Bozak and James Van Riemsdyk for a season. Like, yeah, but when me, he was a 90-point player, he was playing with John Tavares. Yeah, Mika yes. Rantanen's been playing with Nathan McKinnon. You know. But the pro- see, the thing with that is I think that... M- I believe Mitch Marner's play driving is better than Miko Rantanen's in the numbers and definitely is. in the eye test. Yeah, um, and there are some numbers you can look at, like zone entry numbers and like passes created on odd man rushes. It's like Mitch Marner is definitely driving that, whereas Rantanen is, is relying more on McKinnon for that. Right. So my question, my argument to Rantanen would be, yes, he's getting paid this much. A, overpayment. B, uh, he's proven he can drive the play, and you have proven that you need McKinnon. So... It's a bit of a different 
uh, I wrote a, an article for the LeafsNation.com, and I basically said, like, if you're making more than 10% of the salary cap, you better have at least the ability to drive your own line. Which means if John Tavares, God forbid, gets hurt, Mitch Marner better be able to drive a line. And this has been my problem with Austin Matthews over the last couple of years. Is that and we are Neil not Ender? getting into this we because we are that. at 55 minutes and we're not talking about the Leafs. All right, we'll do that another day. We'll save that for another day. Players who don't drive lines that we think do, but it's yes! more a myth than anything. Yep. Unbelievable podcast topic. All right, like the well. idea of it. You know, like the Miko Rantanens, like the star players who are an awesome, you know, Robin to a Batman. Who it's like, guess what? Yeah, you're worth that contract because you're so good when you play with this player. But we can't trust you to run your own line. Right. All right. Well, I feel that like that's a good be, podcast for the future. That is a future podcast. I think next week we'll hit, hopefully, if more RFAs sign, we'll do a, a breakdown of, of all that. But until all then, right. I think we're going Tuesdays now, right? I think, is that going to be the plan? I'm, I'm good with that. That yeah. works for me. All Tuesday right. staff and draft. All right. Lightning round. Lightning round. Grade these for the team. Charlie McAvoy. A. A? Okay. Uh, Josh Morrissey, A+. A+. Ivan Provorov. B. I'm going C, but maybe it's just because I'm not as high on Ivan Provorov. Zach Wierenski. For the team? Yeah, for the team. B. I was thinking B-, minus. we're on the same page there. Mitch Marner. I was I wasn't sure if D minus was too high. For me, B minus provided B the cap. B minus. Oh, I said provided D. the cap goes up. Oh, of course the cap's going. If up, the but... cap does not go up significantly, yeah, it's a C minus. <laughs> I think that they're banking on the cap going up. Which we, we should definitely talk about Mitch Marner in the future. Not on this podcast. Maybe I'll bring you on Leafs Geeks and we can get to a big talk about it. All right. Well, All right. let's chat next but we, we need to get out of here because we've been talking for way too long. We like to keep these under an hour. We like to keep them in that 45-minute to 50-minute zone. So went a bit overboard today, but there were a lot of contracts to talk about. Yeah, and I have to get to school because apparently I'm back in school now. Yay, Rachel has a life. All righty, let's let Rachel get to school. What's going to be our topic next week? Do we know yet? Uh, I think we're doing RFAs provided that they sign. All right, if a few RFAs sign, we'll do that. If not... I want to do my, uh, hey, which players actually don't drive a line that you think drive a line? Let's do it. I like the idea. All right. Sounds good. All right. We'll be back next week. We're we're doing Straff and Graph on a weekly basis now, so we're going to get into the proper swing of things and have things to talk about every week. It's going to be a good time. All right. See you next week, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.